These psalms that we sing, these psalms that we read are so rich with the Christology of Christ in them. It was the Apostle Peter who actually quoted from Psalm 16, uh, showing that that was prophesying the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ in that last verse that we just read. It is that resurrection of Jesus Christ that provides us all of our purpose, our hope of our calling in Him. As we now turn to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to consider some of the meaning of the big picture of life as God intended it from the very beginning. I'm going to read only two verses this morning, verses 27 and 28, so now hear the word of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit upon the preaching of the Word. Empower this, which is your Word to us this day, so that we might bear forth the fruit of righteousness in the power of the resurrection. We pray that our lives would be hid in Christ and that we would live for him, we would die for him, and in that you would bring forth much fruit for the gospel and for your church into the new heavens and into the new earth, which is that glory that we yet await. Lord, we ask that you give us a foretaste of that this day, even around your table. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are considering and taking some time to consider the larger picture of what God's purposes are here upon the earth in the wonderful cosmos that he has created. And in that cosmos that he has recreated in Christ Jesus since the fall of mankind. So we're starting in Genesis 1 and 2 and we're learning of God's purpose here and how that relates to us in the world that he has created. As we begin to see those patterns then in the scripture that relate to one another and that have these narrative arcs from one to the other, we will always have this arc going back to Genesis 1 and 2, an arc which also stretches all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, and we see these large arcs, these medium arcs, and these small little parts of a story that then fit the whole And part of the story of your life, or your life, I should say, is part of that story, maybe even in a small part, but it is a story that continues this narrative arc all the way into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. What God has done here in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is he creates the heavens and the earth and all that in them is and the sea and all of that. And he does it in this three-tiered cosmos. As he creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates a place called Eden, and then he creates a garden and puts it in the east of Eden, we have this three-tiered cosmos. Eden is that which identifies with the later portions that we'll see in the tabernacle and the temple with the Holy of Holies. And this is the place that symbolizes the presence of God with his heavenly host, in the invisible dimensions of the cosmos. The garden, which is east in Eden, identifies with the later holy place in the tabernacle, in the temple, and it symbolizes the visible heavens and its light sources. The holy place is where man would gather in the presence of God to worship him and to fellowship with God, It is the place of the earthly interaction with our Heavenly Father. The outer court of the temple and tabernacle, then, corresponds to the rest of the inhabitable world where humanity dwelt. And what you're going to see in Genesis 1 and 2 is really, in creation, a temple project that God began. And so in time, we will see this unpacked in the different elements and aspects and see what God is doing here in greater detail and then how we are participants in this project of his as he creates this palatial 
temple for him to dwell here upon the earth and enjoy the very works that he has created. This morning I want to focus on one aspect of that temple building project, and that is where God makes Adam king. I want to preach to you on the kingship of Adam. And one preliminary concept that I think will be helpful if we can retain it in our understanding is that Adam's name that was given to him to identify him as a personal individual with a name, and that's what God does in creation. He creates and then he names it. He gives Adam this name, and that name also is the word that means mankind. In fact, in the Hebrew, if you're reading in the Hebrew Scriptures, the only way you can tell if he's talking about the man or generally mankind is its context. Adam is his name. Adam is mankind. I think there is an intentional uh, interplay between the literal and the metaphorical and the man and that which he then represents. Adam, the man himself, stands as the covenant head of all mankind. It's an important understanding for us to understand that God has created us a covenantal people. And there is headship. What Adam does affects all of us. That's the nature of covenant headship. God's charge to Adam is God's charge to all of us. God's desire for Adam is God's desire for all of us. So let's consider the kingship of Adam. First of all, let's consider how he creates man in his own image. Male and female, he creates them. So what does it mean that God creates man in his own image? The word image here we can consider, I mean, it's very like our English word image, how we even use the word image. An image visibly displays that which it represents. It is a physical likeness, a representation of God who is otherwise invisible to the earthly creation. This image in which God has created man is multifaceted. It includes his communicable attributes. In other words, attributes that he has communicated to us of which we display, but they are the qualities that God has revealed himself like. For instance, love. Love is an a attribute of God. In fact, God is love, but he communicates this attribute, this quality to us that we can love. Joy, goodness, grace, mercy, kindness. There's qualities here of righteousness and holiness and knowledge. We see in both Colossians and Ephesians that when in Christ, this image of God, which was marred in the fall, is being restored, it is being restored in that original righteousness and holiness and knowledge. This knowledge would also include intellectual capability. It includes imagination. It includes intuition and cognition. It includes love. And so as this multifaceted um, express image of God himself, but yet creator, creation, made by creator, is that which then displays and represents our creator, God himself, out into the visible creation in a visible way. But it's more than just visible attributes. Also included in this is dominion. Now, when we speak about the dominion as part of the image of God, we, I think we should separate that out from those qualities and put it in a bit of a different category. It's that which is created in the image of God, and he has given us dominion over all the earth. But it is in a different aspect or capacity, and we'll kind of flesh that out in just a moment. 
This distinction gets at the very heart of the very nature of God and his kingdom here upon the earth. And that's why I think this needs to be explored and unpacked to rightly understand how to go about the kingdom business of our creator. Uh, But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Man's ontological being was created in the image of of God. I'm going to use a few theological words here. I think they can be helpful, although they are uh, a, a bit large, and, but, but they're not hard to understand. The word ontological means essence. Uh, it's the study of being. It's the essence of what man is. And see, man's essence of what he is And how he is created is the image of God. Man's essence is this. His physical likeness or his representation of God, who is otherwise invisible to this earthly creation, he is the image of God that reflects the glory of God visibly out into the world. Man, God made man like this super glossy, highly reflective mirror, which I meant to bring at this very moment in my sermon illustration, and that would reflect his glory out into the earthly creation. If you're like me, if you've ever taken a mirror and with a little sinister idea, you shine the sun in someone's face, and they don't know what's kind of bothering them. It's taken the glory and the, the brightness, even in a very little tiny mirror, and that can be a nuisance to them. But as, as, as opposed to the sinister way, we're supposed to be in a glorious way, shining the glory of our heavenly creator out into the world in a warmth and a love and a joy and all of these attributes in such a way that it takes his glory throughout all of the world. And it's through this reflection that we have originally been designed with and created with that God's glory is projected into this cosmos of the heavens and the earth so that all can see and understand and learn of the manifold wisdom of God. Now consider briefly what God says in Romans 1.20, which we read just a moment ago. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. While we consider passages like Psalm 19, which we did wonderfully in the opening prayer of Thanksgiving this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork and day into day utters speech and their line goes throughout all of the world and they just speak because God's creation speaks of his glory. But even more so than that, The creation of his image speaks of his glory. And we often fail to see that mankind himself is the greatest display of God's glory here. It's through that image, through the character, through the nature of these express attributes being lived out here upon the earth. So the very essence of man, the the ontological aspect of man... What it means to be human is summed up in this one statement, man is the image of God in this world. That's what man is. Now that's our purpose. That's who we are. That's our essence. Now both male and female are created in the image of God and collectively they are the image of God. I want to Think about this a little bit more specifically here. On the one hand, this isn't complicated. On the other hand, it's very complex and there's mystery to it. So we're not going to pretend that we got it all figured out. It's complex because it is of Trinitarian quality that this image is reflecting in the world. 
And the Trinity itself is somewhat of a mystery to us. The image of God reflects God's oneness and his distinct persons. Let's see if I can unpack this a little bit. The Trinity is something that expresses or reveals how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. We can't define God. We cannot define God. If you say, give me a definition for God, you can't do it. We can only express and explain how God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. He cannot be limited to a definition. And one of the ways that he has expressed himself in the scriptures is he has revealed himself as one God. He's not many gods. He's not three gods. God is one, but he exists in three separate persons. Distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now each of these three persons of God are co-equal. They're co-eternal. And they're consubstantial, meaning of the same substance, of the same essence, which is where that ontological aspect comes in of the Trinity. Yet each of these three persons have distinct properties, each from each other. The Father, just to give you just an example here, this gets very complicated. Uh, but it is how the Scripture reveals God. This is how God reveals himself to us. The Father is unbegotten, and the generation of the Son and the spiration of the Spirit. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, yet co-eternal, co-equal, and consubstantial. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This procession is called spiration. Now, this ontological trinity, a term that is used, that theologians use to describe the essence, the being of God, is one, which exists in three distinct persons. He's not three gods. He's not a compilation of all of three gods put together to make some god. He's not, in a sense, a uh, one moment he's God the Father, and then another moment he's God the Son, and another moment he's God the Holy Spirit. He's simultaneously one in three persons. He's not a monad. He's not an extension of a single unit. He is a single God that exists in all three persons that relate to one another in perfect trinity. I, I told you we're not going to be able to comprehend this all. And it's not comprehensible. But God wants us to comprehend some of it. He wants us to believe what he has revealed. And he has given it to us intellectually and in faith. For us to believe. Now we can accept this even though we can't understand it all because this is how God has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. Even through the natural creation, His invisible attributes are clearly seen by those things which were made. Which things were made particularly that show us these attributes? His image. His image. Now, these challenging details are especially important to us today, and why I labored a bit on these tedious uh, aspects, because it relates to man's identity. And in the world today, that is what's being so questioned and confused and, and distorted. Because God makes man in his own image, we need to know something about the essence of God so that we can understand something about our essence. When God made man in his image, he made him to reflect his Trinitarian being, his oneness, and his several, all at the same time, without confusion. And first of all, he wants us to think about this individually. Both male and female are created in the image of God. Male and female are created co-equal. 
reflecting the qualities of God individually in their persons. There is an individual dignity that every single person has, whether he is male or female. Both alike have God's communicable attributes. Both are of the same essence in this regard. Both have the same faculties. Both have the same qualities of holiness and righteousness and knowledge and imagination and the communicable attributes of God and so forth. And one application of this can be seen as God then applies the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, in the time when Noah gets off the ark and he expresses these very things and he prohibits murder of somebody else because they are created in the image of God. Now, since the great fall, the image of God has been marred, but it has not been erased. And that gives dignity to every human who lives upon the face of the earth. But secondly, not only individually in male and female, they have the full aspect of the image of God, but collectively male and female reflects the societal unity in which God himself exists and which he creates us in his likeness, oneness with distinct persons. So the image of God created, in the image of God created him, Male and female, he created them. And there's this plurality there that's intentional, and yet this oneness that is expressed. God creates male and female in the likeness of himself. He creates them in his likeness. Now, the male and the female creation here are counterparts. They are for one another. They perfectly correlate, correspond, and complement each other, reflecting the unity of God in his distinct persons. And while there is an ontological unity, there is also an ontological distinction between male and female in much the same way as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are ontologically one and ontologically three. Male and female both together reflect the image of God meaning that both male and female have equivalent value as image bearers of God, and together they make the unity with those distinct properties. Are y'all tracking with me? I know this sounds a little philosophical and theological, but the doctrines of the Scripture and the very heart of how God has created us stands at the very reason and the solution and the purpose for all of the problems that we see going on in the world today. Marriage is Trinitarian. The church is Trinitarian. The one loaf with many members. Uh, Humanity is Trinitarian. We can't live apart from God himself. There is no such thing as the individual in that philosophical sense because we are all distinct persons but in a whole of a one. Human life is Trinitarian. The essence of our being and creation is Trinitarian because it is after the likeness of God. There's so many questions today about identity. This is a word that has now risen to heights of usage in our language around us today that we almost cringe when we hear the term itself. The questions of identity in our world going on today are so confused and so reprobate. But let me be very clear from the scriptures, there are only two genders, male and female. They are not to be confused, and they cannot be mixed, and they cannot be changed. 
any more than God the Father is going to be changed into God the Son. These are divine truths and biological non-negotiables. It is an objective fact and not a subjective determination. And no one can thwart God's purposes or design or change those realities. One may go through some hormone therapy. He could even have surgical procedures, but that does not change the essence of who they are, maleness or femaleness, in how God made them. You will not thwart the purposes of God. But the reason people are so confused and misled in these lies is because they have rejected God himself. And when you reject God himself, you're going to reject his image, that which reflects his glory. And that's what's going on. That's what we read in, in Romans 1, uh, chapter 1. In, in verse, just to rehearse it one more time, in verse 21, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an incorruptible God, including his image, into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. What you're seeing is not only the corruption of male and femaleness, you're seeing people today identifying as four-legged animals. Because they have rejected God and God has turned them over to a reprobate mind. But God is a trinity. Where each of the persons of the trinity has specific roles and they perform and they are seen in particular ways in their focus of their works. Now theologians have distinguished oftentimes what we refer to as the ontological trinity from the economic trinity. We're not talking about two trinities. We're not talking about two gods. We're talking about two aspects of which we are struggling to try to communicate what the Bible says about it. The economic trinity is that when we get the word economy, administration, it's the, the working of this out into the world that we see and observe. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all have distinctive roles that they play within that one society of the Godhead, and there is still oneness to this. So, for instance, the Father decrees all things, and the Son is the one that becomes flesh and he bore our sins, and he died upon the cross, and he was buried in the grave. He was raised the third day. He ascended back on high. That was the son's role. And he did this in perfect obedience to the Father's will. And he was given the Spirit of God to empower him to do the work that the Father sent him to do. And he did it joyfully and perfectly. And the Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead which indwells us and applies the work of Christ's redemption to our lives in perfect harmony with what the Son and the Father has done. And this cohesiveness in this unity of all three of the economic roles of the Trinity is important to understand even in terms of man's salvation. The Spirit only applies the work of Christ's redemption to those for whom Christ has given the propitiatory, propitiatory atonement upon the cross and died for. And Christ dies for those for whom the Father has chosen and given to the Son. And those that the Father has given to the Son, the Son will utterly save and in no one will He cast out. And the Spirit... And the Father and the, and, and, and the Son work all in this perfect unity and trinity, each having their different roles. Likewise, male and female, God makes in this Trinitarian likeness, even in this economic manner. They have different roles to play, yet there's unity. Now, ontologically, they are co-equal. Economically, there are different roles that they play. So a male 
is different than a female. A male cannot give birth to children. And a woman can't bear children, which she loves to do, apart from the male. This is just reality. This is how God's made us. And if we could just step back and not only accept that, but receive that with great thanksgiving and live in the roles that God has designed us to be, because we cannot change that, and live it out unto God in the perfect harmony of the Trinitarian family, then it brings all the more glory to God as your mirror is reflecting that out into the world. And that's what the world needs to see in your marriage and in your children. Male and female bodies are made different ontologically, but also ontologically because they have economically different roles. They're made in the image of God. Trinitarian. Men and women are so confused today about their roles. They don't understand that they are made in the image of God. They don't don't understand how to live this out, and so they have to create their own way, and they keep falling short, and they keep going further and further and further into the reprobate mind to now they're not even doing things logical or reasonable or according to nature itself. It's all going to uh, be a self-defeating manner. Trans woman is an absurdity and a blasphemy against God. And to allow them to compete in female athletics is even more absurd. Even unbelievers see this because nature itself has taught them. And God is the one who created nature. But these depraved attempts are filled with contempt for God and confusion of life. And and when we have contempt for God, we will always have confusion for life. And they'll never find their purpose until they find their true identity as image bearers of God, male and female, together as God intended it. And only way they're going to find this is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. So having created them in his image, God then blessed them and he gave them a mission as kings. Verse 28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Some people refer back to this as the dominion mandate. First of all, we see that God blessed his image bearers. God gives them enabling grace so that they would accomplish successfully what God has called them to do. They could not do it alone. They could not do it apart from God. They are simply the image bearer. Now God's grace is clearly seen and given and revealed even before the fall. God's favor and empowerment was essential to man to accomplish his role as image bearer even before the fall, so how much more so is it important to rely upon his grace after the fall? Yet even then, man needed God's blessing, and so God richly, lavishly gave it to him. And then he tells him, be fruitful and multiply. Now this is the way that God's glory then is going to go throughout all of the earth. It's through the multiplication of the image of God. We're going to be multiplying images of him who has crowned us with glory so that his glory can go to the uttermost parts of the world and that garden will grow. That place where man interacts with God here upon the earth will grow. That's the original intention in Genesis 1 and 2. So this Trinitarian society of the family, these image bearers created in God's likeness, would be the visible representation of God throughout all of the created cosmos. We're going to see this theme coming back to us even after the fall. Be fruitful and multiply. 
We're going to see it particularly as it's associated with God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 26, 4, we see God says, And I will make thy seed multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give unto thee the seed of all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. See, that's the theme of go and, and multiply, subdue and take dominion. When God met Jacob at the dream vision at Bethel, he tells him in Genesis 35, 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. This is part of the kingly aspect of the kingship of Adam. Jeremiah 23.3 speaks of a time, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. This be fruitful and multiply is a kingdom dominion mandate for us. Couples, as God gives you children, may you have lots of children. But not just lots of children. May you grow them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so they can co-reign with Christ and exhibit his glory. After the fall, and boy, this fall really created some havoc down here. But after the fall, we see God getting this all back on track through a new Adam. Now remember that term Adam is a person's name, but he's also used for all of mankind. And Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 is called the last Adam. There was the first Adam, and there is the last Adam, and that's Jesus. And now Jesus is the new covenant head of a new mankind, of a new race of people. He is called the image of God. In Hebrews 1.3, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's our Jesus, the perfect Adam. And this is where the Great Commission comes in. When Jesus says, now all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Oh, that last phrase is very important. Why is it important? Because that's what the first Adam failed. And when he failed to observe all things that God had taught to him, and he took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he sent the entire human race into a fall of sin and cursed the earth. And now Christ, the last Adam, has come to reclaim that dominion. And that's why following God's word and his way is absolutely essential to the great commission of the gospel. And so as we hear these words, Jesus is saying, in a sense, be fruitful and multiply into this new context, this fallen world of which now the new heavens and the new earth are being created. Now he says to them in Genesis 1, he says, now be fruitful and multiply. The next phrase is subdue it and take dominion. And this is the idea of which we then bring in this kingly aspect. This is the kingly reference to our mission. Subdue it. Bring it under subjection. Now while this sounds like kind of taming a wild beast or, or maybe taking dominion over a hostile land, we mustn't read in after the fall back into the place before the fall. I want us to be careful here. There will be a change of application, but the subduing was not going on in a cursed world yet. But in a good world, a world that God says, behold, everything is good. 
A world in which there was not enmity between man and beast. A world in which there was not enmity between the ground and man's work. A place in which there was not yet enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This subduing of the earth and taking dominion of it in a, in a holy and a righteous context where there was no presence of sin, I think has the idea of now working the unworked land, this common ground, and taking it and now setting it apart for the Lord, making it beautiful, productive, fruitful, and holy for the Lord's use for greater fellowship with this expanding image, which is being fruitful and multiplying. Now, he tells us to do this over the earth. This is the realm of our reign. It's the earth. This is what Psalm 8 was talking about. It's amazing that God has given us dominion over the works of his hands here, the earth. Now, this is not the only thing God's created. And in fact, there is an entirely invisible creation of which we do not see, of which we do not have the, the dominion. But this is the area that was our rightful dominion for which we were created, the earth. And we see the manner of God's reign now working with the creation, interacting with God's creation in those very positive, creative ways. The whole earth is the, the, the man's realm to explore and to discover and to create and to make and to build and to mine and to establish and to cultivate and to invent and to take animal life and, and train animal life to the glory of God and bring that into this loving aspect of this wonderful creation. That's why we're going to see animals and plant life in the very sanctuary of God in later days. But what does man do in his kingly role? Is he takes God's wisdom, see, and he reflects that out into the entirety of the world, and he displays it for all of creation to see, including God's wisdom working in and with one another. And in doing so, however, man must always remember that he is under the great king. The only one and true sovereign who made it all. Man is only the image of the true sovereign. He is not that sovereign. And that's where Adam got off track. Therefore, it must be done in God's way, and it must be done in the way that God desires for us to complete his mission, or that mission will fail. Well, God's mission isn't going to fail. In fact, his whole purpose here is to invest all of this attention into this world. Now, there was something that happened in Genesis 3, and that is what we know as the fall. Man disobeyed God, and when he disobeyed God, it sent the entirety of the human race into the plummet of sin because Adam was its representative head. Adam was held responsible, and yet in Adam we have all fallen. On the one hand, the fall changed everything, and on the other hand, it didn't change a thing. The fall was always in God's plan, so the world would become the context through which God's glory, beauty, light would shine all the brighter against a dark backdrop. In spite of the fall, God's temple project, was, which he began in the garden, he got it back on track. And God would get this project back on track and he will, uh, as we will begin to investigate those future aspects of what God has done, and we look to see his great works. But consider very briefly this fall. Adam, mankind, disobeyed God by eating of the forbidden fruit of the garden. And by doing so, he failed in his mission to take dominion over the earth by reflecting God's glory in it by reflecting his beauty in it, by reflecting his holiness in it, by reflecting his righteousness in it, by reflecting this knowledge and wisdom throughout the world, he failed in that aspect. He completely abrogated his responsibility as image bearer. And when he did this, he forfeited the dominion over this earth over to the serpent, the devil, who has governed the world all the way up till Christ. 
And when that last Adam, Jesus, regained the dominion of the earth by dying for our sins and raising to life on the third day, he defeated the dark forces of the enemy who had up until that point controlled this earth since man forfeited it in Genesis 3 in the garden. But since that time, the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning. And since that time, the power of the gospel is availing. And that's why Jesus says, all authority now has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Now go successfully and make disciples. And he will equip us to be successful in that which delights him. It's obedience to the gospel, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I commanded you. Where Adam made that first mistake, we as kings in the likeness now of Christ, restored in this image, we are to do the king's command. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And the only way we can take dominion over this world and subdue it, which we will, is being obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will avail. The creation project, on the one hand, hasn't changed. God is still building a palatial temple for himself here on the earth where he fellowships with his creation, where he delights in his creation, especially his image in which he created after his likeness. In Christ, the image of God is being restored in us. In fact, when we come to worship, that is the place where the image is being restored. It's there in the garden, fellowshipping with God. That's the place where the image of God in each one of us is being polished and cleaned and, and, and made bright and clear so the glory of God can shine through you and reflect out into the world. And as we leave the sanctuary today, we're going as kings to subdue the world and take dominion in God's way. By taking his glory and his beauty and his delight and his attributes and displaying them to this world, to all of creation, including the animals, including fallen men, including one another, we're going to display the glory of God. We're going with how he has recreated us, given us a heart of love, Holiness, original righteousness, now restored imagination for his glory with a renewed understanding of what beauty means. The truth is now with us and in us through Christ and through the Spirit. The earth is not, hear me now, the earth is not going to hell in a handbasket. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He delights in it, he creates it, and he will bring heaven here. That's his plan. That's what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. It might seem like it, but that's not what's happening. By faith, God has told us the end of the story. By faith, God has shown us what is going on here. By faith, it's the only thing you can trust is what God has revealed to himself about himself to us. And he has done this graciously. He's shown us what the plan is. He sees where it's going. And even the greatest fall and the wickedness has not yet come. We saw that as emblematic in Genesis 6. When God destroys everything except for eight people and a couple of each of the pairs of animals, right? Oh, it seems like it's so bad out there. But see, Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has bound the strong man. Jesus is plundering the strong man's goods, and he is reclaiming the earth and mankind for himself so that we can be in his likeness, subduing and taking dominion over the earth. And he will make us successful. See, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He created us in God's image, and that image was restored in Christ Jesus and is being restored in us. We are kings, and the Bible says we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, co-reigning with him. 
fact, the Bible even says one day we're even going to judge angels, which we were created in a lower order of. So, folks, be encouraged with God's plan. He will not let this plan fail. He will not let this earth fail. He will not let evil triumph. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The church is the kingdom which we read about in Daniel chapter 7. And that which will tame uh, in the headship of Christ those beasts that then rule uh, the world and these world powers. See? See, Jesus has accomplished the hardest part. And now he's employing us to join him in his finished work to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And that fruit which you will do in his name will make its way there. The gospel of Jesus will prevail. It is only through the gospel that our identity is restored, our mission put back on track, and God's creation temple project is successful. So raise those little kings for God's glory, to shine his glory in all of the world with truth and righteousness and holiness and the knowledge and wisdom of God, with imagination and beauty and goodness. And go and subdue the earth and take dominion for this good earth for which God created and made for his own pleasure. And in Christ, just know that you are a king empowered to success. So let's look into Christ and let's get about our business of reflecting his glory as his image-bearing king. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for clarity through the scriptures in Genesis 1 and 2 and helping us to know who we are, clarifying the, our essence of who we are as image bearers, our economy to go and do the work and the roles that you've given male and female for the glory of God throughout all of this world to be fruitful and to multiply and subdue it and take dominion with your character and with your likeness and with who you are, a God of love and holiness and a God of righteousness and justice and a God who loves this place. And so we love this place too. But we, like our, our, our head, Jesus, ministered in a very difficult world, and this is part of your plan, that we will reign as kings through suffering, and your glory will be further shown to this world even through our sufferings. So may we not despise the sufferings for your namesake, but even as the apostle Paul would say that I might know these sufferings in Christ and fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in this world for the glory of God to bring in the fullness of the heavens and earth. Lord, we thank you that in Christ we are new creation and that we have a taste of the glory to come. As we come around your table here now, we pray that as we come as made in your image-bearing likeness, that we come as kings, we come as priests, we come in that which you have made us and restored us to be, and we enjoy this table with the King of kings and the Lord of all who govern. Lord, we give you all the glory for it, asking that you would further shine your glory through this, your church. In Jesus' name, amen.